Hi, this is Welcome to the End Times from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and big neon finger flashing on and off, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm researcher and first edition mint condition book collecting angel, Dr. Kelly Jones. And we're here today to talk about the last chapter of Good Omens Sunday and the extra materials at the end of the book. It's a breathing space, a chance to morally rearm, get the defenses up, ready for the big one. Time to stop Armageddon. A quick overview of this last chapter before we dive into our discussion. Newt and Ananthema receive a new book, The Further Nice and Accurate Prophecies of Agnes Nutter, but Newt discourages Ananthema from reading it. Crowley and Aziraphale meet at the duck pond, and we see death feeding the ducks. The bookstore and the Bentley have been restored. Crowley and Aziraphale share their confusion and ponder the ineffable plan, and then leave to have lunch. For some reason we cannot begin to fathom, Madam Tracy proposes to Shadwell, who agrees after popping a bullshit purity question, so I guess the patriarchy survived Armageddon too. Adam is grounded and passes up a chance to sneak away to the circus with the them, but then makes a hole in the hedge so he can chase Dog into the woods. He climbs an apple tree to steal some forbidden fruit, and we end on a rather hopeful note about the state and future of the world. All right, so Dr. Kelly Jones, here we are in the last reading, just a few pages, a yeah. fairly short reading, kind of, you know, summon everything up. Um, overall, what'd you think? Um, I like this section mostly, with with mm-hmm. the exception of one part that uh, we will get to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I like some of the the snark, the humor that's still here, you know, because yeah. I think a lot of the saving the world, end of the world stories kind of end at that point, you mm-hmm. know, when the world has been saved. And I like yeah. this, this day after yeah. kind of, you know, it's, it's cathartic. It's kind of nice. Well, you got to have that resolution. You have to see how the world has changed because that's how you know what a story means, you know? So the resolution really has that purpose after the climax when, you know, the battle is finished and winners have been decided. Um, Knowing how this has made the world different, you know, Mm -hmm. is, is part of what, how you figure out what the story means and what it's all about and, and, you know, and what the themes are. And, uh, and so that, you know, it's, it's essential. Yeah, it is. Um, and I, and I thought it was kind of funny that they started with Ananthema and Newt. Um, mm-hmm. and I got a kick out of this. It said at around half past 10, the paper boy brought the Sunday papers to the front door of Jasmine cottage. He had to make three trips. And oh, <laughs> like, oh, remember when papers were a thing? I know. <laughs> remember that like, big Sunday paper? You know, yeah. all the journalists had to stay up all night to like yeah. <laughs> recount all these stories <laughs> and all this stuff's going on. And people are confused uh, and trying to figure out what happened to their computers. But it seems like nobody really remembers everything. And maybe oh, they I'm still think so it's Saturday. Confused. Yeah. I'm so confused by this whole thing because we have new can't remember what happened. Right. Mm-hmm. Can't remember the book, uh, but knows that Anathema has lived her whole life, you know, to these prophecies and recognizes Agnes's style when he hears the, the tale of the box. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Like at this point, I'm like, OK, are we supposed to believe that they that he doesn't know that he doesn't remember or does he remember and just like I'm I'm so confused by the whole thing and I I just got to the point where I'm like all right I just have to stop asking questions (laughs) 
I think it, it was kind of that, like, waking up from a dream that you halfway mm-hmm. remember kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I did think it was funny that Newt was like, well, if the Sunday time says it's Sunday, then you can be sure they investigated and it is, in fact, Sunday. Then I guess they know what day it is, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's just, it's so weird. And then we have this whole thing. Um, you know, with the guy who delivers the box and then like the two guys and the story of the two guys who went and opened it up and then they found letters from mm-hmm. Agnes to them saying, I know about all the terrible things. I know what you did last summer, like that kind of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and then they shut the box up and they're like, no, no, no. So, I mean, I actually, I'm kind of charmed by this idea, mm-hmm. you know, that, that here's this box that Agnes has sent through time to give to Anathema so that Anathema would have something to hold on to, yeah. you know, after, um, after the first Book of Prophecies is done. Um, and I think that that's really sweet. But also that means that Agnes knew that everything turned out and would continue yeah. Or maybe this was a just in case if there is a Sunday, you know, <laughs> October or whatever, you know, then then give it to the I, I don't know. The, the whole thing is a little weird. It's kind of sweet, but it's a little weird. And then we have and I, OK, this is there's a lot of stuff that bugs me, you mm-hmm. know, in, in like the whole book. But like in, in these ending chapters and here we have anathema, you know, who is so capable and you know has has come through this whole thing and is the one person who's like you know had her finger on the button the whole time like she's always known what's going on you know and her her goodbye in the book is she's asleep for most of it mm-hmm. um it's told through newt's perspective so we don't even get to be in her pov at the end we don't get a goodbye from her yeah. you know and then she comes out she gets this book Right. And Newt says, do you want to be a descendant for the rest of your life? And I'm like, no, she'd rather hang out and deal with your incompetence forever. You know, (laughs) and I don't know, like it just it the whole section is it. And this is the whole book for me. This is the whole thing for me. I am I am at the same time charmed and annoyed. Yes. You know? Yes. So I, think, I don't know. I mean, what did you think about yeah, that? I think charmed and annoyed is is perfect. Uh-huh. Because I love Agnes delivering the nice and accurate prophecy sequel through time yes. and like everything mm-hmm. that she thought through and, you know, it just her competence and, and getting that to Ananthema. But then Newt tells Ananthema that it was junk mail mm-hmm. and tries to block her from seeing the book and fuck that noise. Like, yeah, that book was sent to her. And he lied about it because he doesn't want to live in Agnes's prophetic shadow. And that is not okay. But that's not his choice. It's not his mail. Right. And yeah. and even if his name was on one of the letters, too, like mm-hmm. the book is for Ananthema. Yeah. And, and he's trying to make that decision for her mm-hmm. because, you know, he doesn't like the prophecies or doesn't want the prophecies. There may, first of all, there may be a need for those prophecies. Yeah. Who knows? And second of all, it's not up to Newt. And so, yeah. like, him being willing to lie to her and then them having this romantic, oh, their eyes met and she didn't mm-hmm. open the book. I was like, nope, I'm out. Nope. 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 Yeah, she should have hit him with the book. Yes. <laughs> that would have been ideal. She should have hit him with the book and then opened it 
and have a note from Agnes, like, good swing, honey. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. No, I mean, it's just terrible. So the whole thing annoys me. I hate that we don't have her in her own POV Mm -hmm. at the end of this. And, you know, I hated last week. I didn't bring it up in last week's episode, but... I hated how in last week, like at the climax, here we have Anathema, this incredibly competent, you know, like she has got her shit together. She may be the only one in the whole book who has her shit together, aside Mm -hmm. from perhaps Agnes Nutter, right? Um, She knows what's going to happen. She's doing the research. She's got everything together. And it ends up being an incompetent man who comes in and, you know, turns everything off and, like, saves the day. And, I mean, granted, it's because she knew enough to be like, okay, well, you're a disaster, so here, touch this computer and turn it, you know, that kind of thing. Right. But it still bugs me that, like, she does all of this stuff and then essentially does not do anything, does not get a moment. It's Newt who gets a moment. Newt, in his unbelievable incompetence. Newt. You know, yeah. and I'm so tired of this, like, you know, incredibly competent women next to like men who are just falling apart. And the man is the one who gets all the credit, who gets all the everything. And the woman is just there like, yep. And we don't even get her POV in the end. Yeah. And so he's, he's yeah. taken like it seems like he's taken possession and control. So, you yeah. know, we open up with them at the cottage. Her phone mm-hmm. rings. He answers. The call is for yeah. her. He deals with the call. Yeah. The delivery person arrives for her. He answers mm-hmm. the door. He handles it. And then he tries to hide the book. Yeah. And I'm like, no. Like, yeah. No. So we have an anthema, fiercely independent and competent until she has sex with this man. And then and everything then everything is about is him. taken away from her. Everything. Yeah. Yes. And I hate it. It's yeah. terrible. It so is. that really annoys me because Anathema, honestly, is one of my favorite things in this book. Yeah. After Aziraphale and Crowley, Anathema is why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And so to have her agency taken away as soon as she sleeps with this man, you know, suddenly she doesn't have, there's no more of her left. It's all about Newt, mm-hmm. you know, and like, I liked Newt. Okay. You know, but. No, I, I don't know. It's it's so, so irritating. And that's a thing that really bothers me because there's so much I love about this book. And yet there are, there's huge amounts of patriarchy just, you know, cutting through swaths of it. Mm-hmm. And it drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a thousand tiny cuts. And luckily, yeah. we followed this section with my three favorite characters oh. who all end up at the park. <laughs> Who all end up at the park. You know, and, and all of the humor around the duck pond always makes me smile. And mm-hmm. I, I love this. It said, the park was deserted except for a member of M19 trying to recruit someone who, <laughs> to their later mutual embarrassment, would turn out to be also a member of M19. And a tall man <laughs> feeding the ducks. <laughs> and there were also Crowley and Aziraphale. They strolled along side by side across the grass. And I'm like, oh, yes. I ship it, I ship it, I ship it. And I, I ship it so hard. And I love that we get Crowley and Aziraphale in death. All in the mm-hmm. same place, even though yes. they don't recognize death as death. I still, death is, yeah. is my third favorite character here. So, oh, yeah. I no, love death it. is fantastic. And the yeah. bookshop and the Bentley are back. I know. I They're know. They're back. And it is so great. And 
Adam added some first editions to Aziraphale's shop. And I love so much that Crowley was mm-hmm. concerned because he knew yes. how much the angel treasured his book collection. When he says, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. And it's this genuine bit of empathy. You know, I love that. It was so great. It was mm-hmm. so, so great. And I just, I love these two. And I love Crowley's love for Aziraphale so much. <laughs> I know. I love it. I love it so much. And here they are having this, like, essentially a post-mortem on the end of the world. You know, <laughs> like, reviewing everything that happens and trying to figure it out. And I love how philosophical Crowley's been. And he's talking about, well, first he starts talking about Adam, mm-hmm. you know, um, who was putting the world back just as it was, you know. And then he says more or less as best he can. But he He's got a sense of humor, too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, OK, except like he's an 11 year old kid. So I'm thinking like Adam is this 11 year old kid who knows about first editions like mm. to give those back to, to zero. Fail. Although I guess like he was given an unnatural amount of knowledge for an 11 year old kid, yeah. you know. Um, and then there's this moment where Crowley says, of course, he did change everything. Then maybe he changed himself too. got rid of his powers, perhaps decided to stay human. And Aziraphale says, you know, oh, I do hope so. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that like, that's, it's kind of nice thinking about, we're going to talk about Adam in just a little bit, but like the complication of this 11 year old kid being, you know, being saddled with the weight, the mm-hmm. weight of that much power, the weight of that much knowledge. Um, that's a really difficult thing for anybody, you know, anybody, a grown person to handle. But this kid, yeah, you know, I mean, it's just it's tough. And so, you know, I like that they're talking about this stuff. You know, I like that they're kind of like figuring out what happened and that they're they're concerned about Adam and they want what's best for that kid. Both of them, which I think is very sweet. Yeah, me too. And I and I really love Crowley coming back to the big why question. Yes. Yes. Why did all this have to happen in the first place? Not not how not. Oh, because humans disobeyed and ate the apple or whatever. But why? Mm-hmm. You know, and he talks about plans within plans. And I'm like, oh, meta plans. Like, meta yes, plans. Crowley, let's dig into the why <laughs> of all of it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, there's this thing that he says, anyone that could build a universe in six days isn't going to let a little thing like that happen unless they want it to, of course. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, that is kind of the essential problem of God. You know, can God make a stone so big that he himself can't lift it? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's always the question, right? You know, if there's all of this power, if you believe that there's this guiding force that has all of the power to do anything, you know, um, that can be very complicated if you think about it. I was going to say if you think about it too much, but if you think about it at all, like yeah. it becomes a very complicated, you know, a thing to process. Um, and I think that there is, you know, always the question of free will mm-hmm. that people people have to choose. You know, they have to make their decisions because if God comes in just fixing everything all the time. Right. That's not an experience to have, you right. know. Um, so I don't know. I mean, not to get into like deep theology, because I don't know anything that I have not studied the Bible. I have not studied religion. I have not studied philosophy. Uh, these are just, you know, the things that I have thunk. So um, I like the, uh, the, the whole philosophical space that Crowley's coming from. Um, 
He says, if you sit down and think about it sensibly, you come up with some very funny ideas. Like, why make people inquisitive and then put some forbidden fruit where they can see it with a big neon finger flashing on and off saying, this is it. (laughs) And then, of course, Aziraphale comes back with, I don't remember any neon. (laughs) (laughs) Missing the point, but adorably, adorably Mm -hmm. missing the point. Um, And he goes, I mean, maybe you just want to see how it all turns out. Maybe it's all part of a great, big, ineffable plan. All of it. You, me, him, everything. Some great big tests to see if what you've built all works properly. You start thinking it can't be a great cosmic game of chess. It has to be a very complicated solitaire. And don't bother to answer. If we could understand, we wouldn't be us. (laughs) Because it's all ineffable, death says, while feeding the ducks. (laughs) And you know, I mean, he's he's not wrong. Yeah, Yeah. no, I love death almost seems to be the voice of God, like the actual, you know, Mm -hmm. he seems to be the most philosophical. He seems to be and he's he's not malevolent. Yeah. You know, Um, it's death is like, I think, probably one of the most interesting questions that this book does not even try to answer. Yeah. You know, but he's he's really great. He's there. And what I loved about death. Other from, you know, I mean, his contribution to this conversation was hilarious. But then it, it says, you know, he walks away from the ducks. And as he's leaving, he very carefully throws away all his trash. Yes. And it really felt like kind of a closing out of the pollution mm-hmm. horseman. Yeah. You yeah. know, like it was, it was, I don't, there was something just very comforting about that tiny little yeah. detail. Mm-hmm. That I really enjoyed. And then I loved with all my heart Crowley asking Aziraphale, let me tempt you to some lunch. Oh, <laughs> like, my God. I love them so much. I do, too. It's so They great. are my favorite. <laughs> so, Kelly, you know what's a great plan? You mean an ineffable plan? Great. Ineffable. What's the difference? Well, if you properly define your terms, a great plan would be unusual or considerable in degree, power, intensity, etc. And ineffable would be... Unable to be effed? Effed? You know, like the F word. An ineffable plan is one that can't be effed. It can't be fucked. Oh, dear. God, it is so easy to throw you. It is almost not fun. Did you just say God? No. So here's a great plan for you. (laughs) I think the people who listen to our show should give us money. Do you know how many fictional apocalypses we've talked about by now? So many. I mean, there's still Dead, the Angel podcast. That's good for two or three. And still Pretty, the Buffy podcast. That's another like six or seven. And then there's Listen Up A-Holes about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which technically doesn't really have apocalypses so much as alien invasions. But, you know, potato, potato. You know what I mean? So if people went to, say, patreon.com slash chipperish and gave us a dollar or more a month, we'd be able to keep making the shows they love so much? Sounds like an ineffable plan to me. You're dying to define it, aren't you? I really am. Okay, go. Ineffable means incapable of being expressed or described with words. Alternately, it can mean so sacred as to be unutterable, and it was first recorded in the 15th century coming from the Latin ineffabilis, which means... Are you even listening? No. I stopped caring before you started. Demon, get thee behind me in my dictionary, foul fiend. You love me. Best, best friends. <laughs> you are so cute with your best, best friends. Best, best friends. <laughs> best, best friends. <laughs> All right. So now we have uh, the part of the book that <sighs> was infuriating for me. Shadwell and Madam Tracy. 
Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh. So if the meaning of a story comes from what's changed, <laughs> I really don't want this to be the point that we end on. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So and 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 it felt like they were trying to do something deeper here mm-hmm. because we start with Shadwell dreaming of Adam and the them. Yes. And here's Adam, you know, nothing wrong with witch finding. It's just, well, you've got to take it in turns. Today we'll go out witch finding and tomorrow we can hide and it'll be the witch's turn to find us. Mm-hmm. So you get this cute little, okay, Shadwell, maybe start rethinking your life yeah. message yeah. from Adam. But then it all goes to hell. No, then it all goes to hell. So we have this section. Then there would, he's talking about every Sunday for lunch, you know, what happens. Uh, then there would be a knock on the door and Madam Tracy would call out lunch, Mr. Shadwell. And Shadwell would mutter shameless hussy and wait 60 seconds and allow the shameless hussy time to get back to her room. Then he'd open the door, pick up the plate of liver, which was usually carefully covered by another plate to keep it warm. And I'm like, oh my God. And then this week... This week where things are different and what it should be is that she is leaving a flaming bag of poop in front of this door. (laughs) Instead, she knocks on the door and she's like, why don't you come over to my place? And then they have this whole and she still makes him lunch and she sits there and waits while he eats it. And then she cleans up after him. And then she says, hey, Mr. Shadwell. You who have absolutely nothing to offer. I have been working my ass off like an actual person for the last, I don't know, 30 years. I have managed to save up a nest egg and I would like to spend it buying you a cottage and making the rest of your days comfortable while I clean up after you and feed you and take care of you. And all of that is bad enough. Like, All of that is insulting and terrible enough. And Madam Tracy really needs to get a hold of her own value because dear fucking God. And also that just because a man is a man does not mean that you need him. Does not mean that he's going to do anything to make your life any better. Um, So then we have this whole thing and he turns around and responds instead of being on his knees, grateful that this woman is even speaking to him, let alone cooking for him and proposing that she take care of him for the rest of his useless, worthless days. He <laughs> gives her a purity test, asks her how many people she slept with. She says two. <laughs> Hi, it's Lonnie. Since recording this, Kelly and I figured out that the question he was asking her was not how many people she slept with, but how many nipples she has. However, that was not clear at the time. This is what we thought. So I'm going to go ahead and leave the ranting in, but I just want you guys to know before you send us all the emails. Yes, we know. It was a nipple question. <laughs> Which, you know, fine, whatever, but whatever and he decides that's acceptable um so i hated every i was so furious like you know uh catherine o'hara from clue flames on the side (laughs) of my face (laughs) like this whole thing was so infuriating and i felt insulted and disrespected and like the women here we have again you know madam tracy she's not an anathema she's not a major character but also once again we're seeing her ending through the man who has claimed her as his possession but this guy is even less worthy than newt 
Oh, it's terrible. And like I, when I read the book for the podcast, I take notes in the book. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to cross out this entire section because it needs to burn in the doomsday fire yeah this is terrible it's it's so it's not cute it's not funny and shadwell can kiss my fucking ass yes if he wants a woman like madam tracy then he can fucking get his shit together and work to be worthy of her but this are you kidding me yeah and it, it was it it was insulting and it was terrible but it was also demoralizing yes you know, for me reading this as a woman. And I'm like, you have got to be fucking kidding me. Like, come on. Really? Mm-hmm. Really? Like, really? Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't no, know. It's, it's awful. So cross it out. Burn horrible. it in the doomsday fire. Absolutely. It was just terrible. And I absolutely hated it. Then we move into this little section with the, you know, the coda for Warlock and Greasy. What happened to these other two kids, you know, mm-hmm. um, that Warlock is going off to America and yep. Adam is sending him off to America and taking care of him. And Greasy is, you know, being greasy. <laughs> <laughs> Discovering a love of American football. Discovering a love. Sure. So, um, so I don't know. I didn't really care about this very much. I was like, okay, I, these other kids. I didn't care about it all that much, but I was really glad that Adam cared. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and he considered them friends because they were all in the hospital together when they were born. It's right. Like, even if you were only friends for a couple of hours. And he's watching out for them. Yeah. And I, I just, I like what it says about Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, shipping in my head that like well Gracie will grow up and go to America as like a football player and he'll meet up with Warlock and it will be this beautiful love story and that will all be okay and <laughs> yeah I think that a couple named Gracie and Warlock you yeah. know that could be that could be interesting it could be like a you know a buddy Grease cop lock? situation or you yeah, there's no way to make that good, I think. I think they both got to just change their names or something. I don't know. I don't Moore know. Johnson? Right. <laughs> but know. then we have this this bit with Adam. And mm-hmm. it is, God, it's it's in turns. And again, it's, it's such a complicated feeling I get from these readings. Um, you know, he has all this power as mm-hmm. an 11-year-old kid, which to me is like this tragic, thing like there's something about having that much power that is so incredibly dangerous and also too much weight for this kid to carry and so he's you know all of his friends are going to the circus but he's like no I'm gonna stay behind because I'm grounded and when I, you know mm-hmm. so he's like listening to his father and I guess maybe it may have come from some of the wisdom that he was granted when he like realized who he was you mm-hmm. know um but I'm not I don't know. Like I have this very mixed feelings. It's kind of a sweet chapter, you know? I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a nice, you know, and then he, he makes a hole in the hedge so that the dog can run through because he knows that if he's chasing the dog, because the dog got out that he can leave the backyard and that's okay. Um, So I I don't know. Like it's very complicated because I feel really bad that this kid has all this power and this sense of responsibility with it when he's just a kid, you know, but then he goes out to the apple tree 
And he mm-hmm. says uh, he couldn't see and he gets, you know, chased by the guy who's who has the apple tree, you know, and he says he couldn't see why people made such a fuss about people eating their silly old fruit anyway. But life would be a lot less fun if they didn't. And there never was an apple in Adam's opinion that wasn't worth the trouble you got into for eating it. And I kind of liked that. I liked it a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and I read this, I think, is like a more hopeful, humanistic Garden of Eden story. Yeah. Because at the beginning, you know, when he's in his yard, it says there were a million exciting things a boy and his dog could be doing on a Sunday afternoon. Adam Mm -hmm. could think of four or five hundred of them without even trying. Thrilling things, stirring things, planets to be conquered, lions to be tamed, lost South African worlds teeming with (laughs) dinosaurs to be discovered and befriended. It was like, oh. And it's, it's very sweet. And I think... He stood still as long as he could. Yeah. And then the scheme with the dog was was like a way to bend the rules without yeah. being too deliberately defiant because mm-hmm. people walled up in gardens aren't free. Right. You know, and Adam is going to chase that sense of, of freedom. Um, and I really love that he saw Agnes Nutter in the sky. Oh, yeah. And she winked at him. Like, that was so great. <laughs> that is really sweet. And when he got to the apple tree, you know, it said Adam looked up. Above him hung an old apple tree, gnarled and heavy. It might have been there since the dawn of time. Mm-hmm. And with the speed of a striking cobra, the boy was up the tree. Yeah. And and to me, it was like, well, this is the first day of the rest of the world. And the human in the garden eats the apple once again. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's not the result of a demonic temptation this time. It's it's purely the result of curiosity and imagination. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and I kind of really like the way that they did that. You know, it, yeah. it felt it felt very sweet and very hopeful. Yeah. No, it is. It's really nice. And then we have our final paragraph of the book. If you want to imagine the future, imagine a boy and his dog and his friends. And a summer that never ends. And if you want to imagine the future, imagine a boot. No, imagine a sneaker, laces trailing, kicking a pebble. Imagine a stick to poke at interesting things and throw for a dog that may or may not decide to retrieve it. Imagine a tuneless whistle pounding some luckless popular song into insensibility. Imagine a figure, half angel, half devil, all human, slouching, hopefully, towards Tadfield forever and i thought that was a nice you know closing it was really sweet it was beautiful i love half angel half devil all human yeah you know and the idea of slouching hopefully like i just i really really loved it and reading that from a humanist lens i Mm -hmm. think was oddly comforting despite some of the other other struggles yeah that i I had with the book (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's go into our overall responses to the whole story. And um, here's the thing. Sometimes reading critically makes you like something more. And I've often had the experience where something that I didn't care for that much, once I looked at it critically, I enjoyed it a lot more. Uh, But the reverse sometimes happens where something that I really enjoyed a lot upon closer reflection kind of falls apart for me. And that has been the experience 
with good omens. I love Neil Gaiman and I love Terry Pratchett, but something about them together feels off. Like each of the things that I like least about each of them kind of takes precedence in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, there were a lot of things that I found delightful about the read. You know, there were lots of funny moments. There was some wonderful character work. And of course, the love story between Crowley and Aziraphale, which I am here for and which makes this whole story worth it. Like everything that I didn't like about this book. Um, Crowley and Aziraphale, that essential relationship um, was absolutely worth it for me. Um, I was annoyed, of course, as I mentioned before, by how Anathema's extreme competence is overshadowed in the end by Newt's extreme incompetence. Um, So a man fucking up is worth more than a woman doing everything right. You know, Mm -hmm. and then, of course, it's a little boy who manages to save everything just by the purpose of being born what he was born. You know, none of that power is actually earned. Right. So um, all of it kind of just did not sit that well with me. I mean, here we have, you know, the them. Right. Pepper is the most competent of the them, you know, so she gets some good moments. But again, like all of that is overshadowed by Adam you know, who has earned, again, none of his power. And if this was some kind of commentary on the patriarchy, you know, it's a fairly accurate representation of that kind of bullshit, you know. But I have no confidence that it is intended as a commentary rather than simply another piece of storytelling that upholds all of these ideas and presumptions, you know. Um, Madam Tracy is constantly insulted and demeaned by Shadwell. You know, but she loves him and flirts with him anyway, even though there's literally nothing in him to recommend him to her, you know, but she still loves him anyway. Again, it's unearned, you know, like men get things that are unearned all the time. And then you have these women who are working, you Mm -hmm. know, working, (laughs) making a nest egg, figuring out all the prophecies, doing all of the work, and they get run over by the Bentley on their bikes (laughs) Their book gets lost. They get blown (laughs) up, right? By, you know, crazed bunch of witch finders, right? Um, It's all of it so irritating. We have Agnes Nutter, who is the most competent of them all, destroyed by incompetent men, you know? And there's this one line, right, from earlier in the reading. It might have interested Newt to know that of the 39,000 women tested with the pin during the centuries of witch hunting, 29,000 said, ouch, 9,999 didn't feel anything because of the use of aforesaid retractable pins. And one witch declared that it had miraculously cleared up the arthritis in her leg. And that, of course, was Agnes. But I mean, this idea that that these witch finders, this this huge, you know, movement that these men were involved in trying to weed out women and kill women to basically make them. I mean, what the witch finder army does is not that different from what Crowley does with his plants. Right. Let's take one. Let's kill one while all the others watch. And then we'll keep the others in line. You know, except, except that we it's also, not plants. It's yeah, women. And we get the benefit of stealing their property. And yes. Oh, that yes. They owned and getting rich while we're doing it. And we get because, paid per witch. Right. Yeah. 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 So here we have this parade of unworthy men with unearned treasures, unearned power, unearned love, unearned everything. Right. That just gets given to them, you know, by the women that they are overshadowing, overpowering, and killing. And I just, like, it drives me 
crazy. And this is the kind of thing that like we see this, it's one thing to have it in one story, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I've talked about this a few times. It's like raindrop versus the hurricane, right? One raindrop is fine. Like you can handle that and it's okay. It's when you have these bits of rain that are pelting you from every single direction, you know, that after a while becomes a hurricane and it becomes incredibly damaging. And women and people of color and, you know, um, people, disabled people and, you know, like every, like every possible permutation, LGBTQ, anybody who is not straight white male, you know, cis white male, right? All of that stuff. Um are getting abused by these stories constantly because this is how we're portrayed. This is how we're shown what our value is. We're told Mm -hmm. in all of these stories that our value is this, you know, that you can work your ass off, be incredibly competent, be wonderful. And your best hope is that you get killed by a mob lit on fire, you know, overshadowed by fucking newt, you know, (laughs) or married to Shadwell. Well, like, those are terrible, terrible fates for women who are exceptional and exemplary throughout this entire run, you know? And so this is the kind of stuff that isn't just happening in Good Omens, happens in so many of our stories. And after a while, it gets to be just too goddamn much. And yes, I am an angry feminist. If you don't like it, fine. (laughs) I don't care. I'm claiming it. There's a reason why I'm angry. There's a really good reason why I'm angry. So, I mean, aside from being, like, pissed off as a woman because of this, um, <laughs> as a story expert, I find myself also kind of annoyed with this book because in the end, pretty much everybody is ineffectual, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even Crowley and Aziraphale, for all their power, for the demon and the angel and being connected to the powers and whatever, like, they don't really do anything. For all that running around, they don't change anything. Everything pretty much would have happened without them. The The last thing that was done that actually saved the world was Adam going to the wrong family. And even that was an accident. Crowley yeah. didn't do that deliberately. He made a mistake, you mm-hmm. know? So as a narrative itself, Good Omens is kind of disappointing because all of our characters that are in there trying to do things, I mean, the only... One that really affected change, I think, was Newt in his incredible stumbling keystone cop incompetence. And I guess Anathema delivered Newt to that place where he could, you know, save the world by fucking up, you know, Um, which is the one thing that Newt is actually capable of doing. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, Anathema, I guess, does have an effect there, but it's it's really very thin. Yeah, and and I think Adam to some extent does because of his love for the world. Like he makes the choices that he makes, which, which are right. powerful choices, but he's not our protagonist, right? Like but Adam is not... the source of destruction right. and he stops himself. Right, right. He stops himself. And yeah. so that's the thing is everybody else pushing and pulling against it does nothing. Yeah. And in the end it, you know, it all came down to Adam and it all came down to Adam's, you know, choices within himself. Right, right. And so like you could say that, you know, Crowley had that effect by making a mistake, but it was all accidental. It was all 11 years ago. Like Mm -hmm. what's happening right now, all this running around, like it's not doing anything. They might as well just stayed home, had a cup of cocoa, you know. (laughs) Um, But here is a thing. And I did have this thought 
you know, uh, and, and it's, you know, like kind of like this devil's advocate in my head that there's sort of a counter argument for this, not narratively, but maybe thematically. Right. You okay. know, um, so in quantum theory and please understand, I know nothing. I am Jon Snow when it comes to quantum <laughs> theory. Like, I understand none of it aside from what I've read in articles and most of which, most of those articles, I didn't entirely understand. But here's, here's what I got. Here's what I picked up, right? In quantum theory, the quantum mechanical state of an electron is both particle and wave until it's observed. And only then does it change, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe this book is a commentary on the power of observation. You know, the tree falling in the woods, not making a sound unless there's someone there to hear it, you know? So here we have all of these people watching what's happening and trying to figure something and trying to do something. I, I, I don't know. It's a, it's very thin argument <laughs> trying to like, but I'm, but I'm trying to find an argument for the way this story unfolds. And that's pretty much the best that I can do. But I have to say, though, this idea that a, a particle like an I, or an electron, and again, like anybody out there who understands science, I'm probably wrong, but I've got the basics of it. Like the, the, there's a thing that is both a particle and a wave until it's observed, you know, which actually also kind of contributes to this idea that I have come to, well, or that I've come to, like I made it up, this idea that has been around for a really long time that I think actually may be the, the ultimate... <laughs> what what life is you know um that that existence is basically a big video game it's a big computer simulation right you mm-hmm. know because video games when you play them only render the part of the world your character is in at that moment to conserve you know the the work that the computer has to do right right um so only the part that can that is actually being observed is being rendered at any given moment you know and the rest of it is wherever until you're there you know um so you know maybe this story is like a philosophical treatise on the power of observation and molding reality like maybe (laughs) maybe that's it probably not probably not but I'm, I'm, I'm trying, you know, um, but in the end, like the world building is fun. The character work is mostly good. And the moment to moment prose, of course, is delightful. Narratively, the story is a mess. You know, like, <laughs> it's just a mess. Um, but in the end, you know, if it's not about the world ending, you know, if that's if that's what's happening, but it's not what the story is about, that it's about the love story between a demon and an angel. Um yeah, even then, it's still not an effective narrative. But that's but th- that's kind of a lovely element in mm-hmm. this story. So I don't know. Like I'm, I'm so conflicted because there's so much that I really enjoy about it, and yet it falls apart and it really suffers upon like deep a deep look at it. So yeah. what did you think? What were your overall observations for this? So I think sometimes reading critically is like dancing around your kitchen while holding a double edged sword that's on fire. <laughs> While also trying to enjoy your coffee. Yes. You know, because it's easy to get burned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once you see something, you can't unsee it. And I struggle with this so much while reading books that I mostly love or used to love or really wish I could love. Mm-hmm. And I think the problem for me is reading while female. Yes. Because mm-hmm. in the face of ancient, deep, pervasive, immersive, patriarchal lenses, sometimes it feels like there are two choices for me. Mm-hmm. I can ignore what hurts and love the story in spite of itself. Or I can feel that kind of loss that comes after a breakup with somebody who keeps hurting you without necessarily meaning to, (laughs) you know, and more often than not, I end up feeling like I'm trying to love a story that simply was not written for me. 
Right. Mm-hmm. And so I was talking about this with our brilliant Shippers co-host, Noelle LaCroix. And she asked me, she said, well, what do you love about this story then if its treatment of women is so hurtful? Mm-hmm. And my answer was, well, I love the humor and the snark and the wit. I love the world building and the hope. I love death. And most of all, I love Crowley and Aziraphale. Mm-hmm. But I love those things in spite of the sadness that I feel after reading, once mm-hmm. again, a book by authors I admire and feeling like every woman in the book was badly used. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and, and the thing that I realized is this push-pull between story enjoyment and the sadness and anger I feel reading while female is almost always both present and expected. Yeah. And so when I watched Black Panther. Yes. This, like the shock. The relief. And, yes. Relief. <laughs> joy. Yes. Of not feeling that way. Yes. I think for the first time ever while watching a movie. Mm-hmm. was so powerful, mostly because it was completely unexpected. Yes, you know? exactly. And, and so I, I just, I struggle with that because mm-hmm. all that being said, I do love this book for what it is. Right. You know, it's a funny story made in happy collaboration between two gifted writers who loved and respected each other. But I feel like I have to also forgive it for what it is which is a product of its time and culture and another example of patriarchal perspective. Mm -hmm. So again, to quote Noel, it feels like there are hurdles I have to jump in order to go along with the ride and enjoy the story. Yeah. And for people with less privilege than me, there are going to be a lot more hurdles that have to be jumped, you know, but I am well and truly hopeful that the TV adaptation is going to be better. Mm-hmm. That it will communicate the heart and soul of the story without also communicating the hidden and not so hidden sexism and racism that lives in the book. Because what I've seen so far of the show really, really gives me a different feeling. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and a, and a real sense of hope for the story. So I'm really looking forward to watching the series and hoping that this is simply a story where they can take the things that are wonderful and bring them to a perspective that shows more awareness and more empathy. And if they do that, I am going to be ineffably delighted. Ineffably. (laughs) Ineffably. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, You know, that feeling that reading while female, and I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people have reading while fill in, fill in the blank, you know, reading while black, reading while Asian, reading while LGBTQ, you know, mm-hmm. reading while disabled, like all of these. So there are so many things, so many identities, you know, that either get ignored, you know, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, you're ignored or actively abused in a lot mm-hmm. of our storytelling. Um, and again, like it's, it's very complicated because it's, I think so, it's not easy, but like simple for people to be like, well, there's this sexist stuff and there's that racist stuff and there's that anti-LGBTQ and there's, you know, this ableist bullshit, you know? Um, and you look at all of it and you think, you know, how do I deal with that? Like, how do I, you know, how do I accept that this is part of something that I love? How Mm -hmm. do I accept that something that I love is hurting people and hurting me? You know, Um, it's really hard to do that. So it's really easy or or either more simple to just dismiss it entirely and be like, well, those people are assholes because they did. But the fact of the matter is that they are also a product of the same society that we are in, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and our society trains you 
to look at the world this way. So much so that until this reading, and this is not the first time I've read this book, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Me I too. didn't. I didn't really notice it and consciously acknowledge it, you know, and it was mm-hmm. abusive to me. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. um, so so we have a society that trains you to think this way and to not see it. And eventually, you know, if you are someone who is part of an identity like anti-Semitism, you know, I mean, let's throw that in there, too. That often gets forgotten as well. But that's a huge thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, that that when you feel like attacked and devalued. I mean, my God, just deep and not actively attacked. Look at what this book says about the value of women. Yeah. You know, that no matter how extraordinary you are, your best option is Shadwell. Right. (laughs) Well, it's like you only get to be in the story if you're of service to the men in the story. And yes. And this, this devaluing is Mm -hmm. just so expected. Yeah. That, you know, like, I don't, it's not that I don't see it. It's just that I'm used to it. And the fact that I'm yeah. that used to it makes me right? really, really sad. Because you always know you're going to get hit. And you're yeah. like, well, it's worth it. Because, like, the rest of it is so good, you know. Um, and I, I, And it's really hard to just dismiss it and mm-hmm. dismiss all of this, you know, like all of these stories that we had from the beginning of time that have done this, that have reinforced these values, these white supremacist, you know, Judeo-Christian, right? Um, you know, ableist, um, you know, patriarchal, like all of these values, all of these values that, that devalue uh, some identities and overvalue other identities, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are really great stories out there that you still want to engage with. I still love Taming the Shrew, y'all. I mean, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very complicated to find a way to still love these things that are actively abusive. Um, you know, and also sometimes it's hard to see when it's abusive to identities that you are not personally a part of. Right. Um, that takes some work, too. And, you know, for me, I feel like the job that we have to do is read critically, think about it, reject the premise, acknowledge mm-hmm. that feeling, acknowledge the reading while X identity, you know, um, acknowledge that feeling. And then you know that like what it's telling you isn't true because where it gets really, really difficult is when you internalize all of those messages You Mm -hmm. internalize the misogyny, you know, and turn it like for us as women against yourself. If you're a person of color, you internalize the racism, turn it against yourself. Like that's something that you have to fight against. And unfortunately, it is kind of exhausting, especially while engaging with your fucking entertainment. Yeah, it is. I should be able to relax. Because there's Mm -hmm. so many messages and they're so consistent and they're found everywhere and sometimes I wonder and like we've talked about this on other podcasts but why engaging with story which is you know one of the things that lights me up most in the world yeah is also sometimes just fucking exhausting and now I know why because exactly I'm like okay but I can't go into this story without putting some armor on first yeah. And then you've got to, you know, trudge through the thing with all the armor on and you keep getting dinged and dinged and dinged and dinged. And plus mm-hmm. it's fucking hot in there. And like, you just want to yes. take it off, you know? Yes. Like, and I then wanna... you go to something like Black Panther. 
Yeah. Which, by the way, did as much for the, its representation of women as yes. it did for its people of color, black Absolutely. people. Like, oh it was, God. I mean, I don't know what the experience is clearly as a black person to, to have seen it, but I know what the experience was as a woman and I cried. It was <laughs> like, shocking. Yeah. It shocking was, it was to me. wonderful it was so wonderful but it was yeah. so surreal yeah and i you know to be like oh oh wait what i don't have what? to be hit it's, I, you're I, walking into a room expecting to be hit and nobody hits you yeah and you can like, just I, enjoy it not only do i not need armor like yeah i can put my hair in a ponytail take off my bra and watch <gasps> this movie yes like, yes you know this is this <laughs> is what know. joy feels like like hell yes, yes. And it wasn't pandering. This is what it feels like to be a straight white man. <laughs> but it, it wasn't pandering and it wasn't yeah. political no, correctness. No, true. You know, right. it wasn't a token super. It wasn't like, a we'll give you this. It's right. we'll share this with you. Exactly. You will be part of this. You know? Or you are part of you it. Like are we are acknowledging that you yes. are part yes. of this. We are acknowledging that you are, oh, I don't know, human yeah, and and that you have uh, value, that yes. you have value. We are told as women from day one that we don't have value. Yes, and it is fucking ridiculous. It is. Yeah. It is. So yeah, and and like I said, I do really love Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Yes. I enjoy so, so much I. of their work. I'm really, really looking forward to the show, not only because I think it will be a great TV show, but also because I think they have a real opportunity here to, yeah. to change the landscape of the story in ways that can be incredibly powerful for people watching yes. it. And I, and I really hope that they do that. I hope that they do too. And you know, I'm not mad at them. Mm-hmm. I, they're, wonderful writers and they've given me so much joy between you know their their various projects that they've done separately and I'm grateful for that um and I I feel like it's it's something that was in the culture and our stories reflect us back at ourselves and so I don't blame them like I blame Mm -hmm. the culture that told everybody right that this is the way it's supposed to be and um and I feel like I think they're both good people. I think they're both amazing writers. I think they are, you know, like victims of society in the, in the way that a lot of us are, you know, and, and mm-hmm. you don't think to, to question it, you know? Um, so like, I, I really feel this, there are some times where, you know, particular writers or creators are, are truly terrible and trying to do bad things. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times it's just a, an accident, you know, it's not intended. Um, it just happens. And so at the, while, we, while I want to call it out and I want to be conscious of it and I want to pay attention to it, I also want to do that without like condemning people about it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So now we've had our discussion. <laughs> there were some extra materials. And you know me, I don't like to go into the extra textual of it all, but you you dived into it. So what did you see there? I did. I love yeah. the extra textual stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I love there was some Q&A um, about this. And so there were there were two things in the, in the Q&A part that I really liked. Um, there was one little description of the book taking on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. It said the point they both realized the text had wandered into its own world was at the basement of the old Galanx books where they'd gone together to proofread the final copy. And Neil congratulated Terry on a line that Terry knew he had not written. And Neil was certain <laughs> he hadn't written either. 
They both privately suspect that at some point the book started to generate text on its own, but neither of them will actually admit this publicly for fear of being thought odd. Oh, God, <laughs> and, that and, is so sweet. Yeah, and then I got a little bit of trivia from Gaiman. Who said, a few years after we met in 1988, Terry and I wrote a book together. It began as a parody of Richmond Crompton's William books, which we called William the Antichrist, but rapidly outgrew that concept and became a number of things instead, and we called it Good Omens. Mm-hmm. And I was not familiar with the Just William book series. Yeah. Uh, so I looked it up, um, and it was published in uh, between 1921 and 1970. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a very popular series. And the, throughout all of that time and all of those books, the main character is always 11 years old. Oh. So I thought that that was kind of an interesting thing. And, and I really mm-hmm. love the way that you can find inspiration that begins as a parody or mm-hmm. a reaction or a fan fiction or a rewriting and ending of something yeah. and have it, you know, morph into something that truly becomes yours. And I think a yes. lot of times as, as writers and as creators, we're scared to do that, but that that's an incredibly valid form of inspiration. And no, and some, you know, is it absolutely is it's completely legit it is not plagiarism unless you are copying everything down if you're inspired by something and you take that idea and you run with it Mm -hmm. and you make it your own then it's going to be its own thing yeah and and i yeah and i love you know game inciting that and kind of explaining Mm -hmm. where this came from and and i just i just really love that It, it made me really happy um and then they each wrote a short essay about the other yeah. Aww. And it was really cute because there was these running jokes in each essay about Neil permanently trading in his hat for a black leather jacket. <laughs> and I thought that was really cute. And um, in describing Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett said, he takes the view that mornings happen to other people. And I was like, I see you, Neil. I see I you. Love it. One night I out to another, it. baby. I see you. <laughs> Oh, I think that's great. Yeah. All right. So, Dr. Jones, what's your favorite part? Of this section, uh, it was death feeding the ducks and throwing away his litter and Crowley's concern over Aziraphale's books and Crowley tempting Aziraphale to lunch. I just loved it so much. I loved it, too. I thought that was great. That's also my favorite part. Uh, Specifically, I loved Crowley's philosophizing, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I loved him talking about the why and trying to figure it all out you know and uh and in the end just being like yeah let's just go to lunch yeah 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 it was it was just really great it was really great and you know somehow a reservation opened up for them and they just of course it did of course it did it's wonderful you know why you know why it did why because they're best best friends (laughs) because it's part of the ineffable plan Right. <laughs> the unfuckable plan. The unfuckable. <laughs> we do not question when reservations open up. We simply <laughs> slide in the booth and order wine. <laughs> we are done with the book now, y'all, but we've got the TV series to look forward to, so stay with us. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow Lonnie at Lonnie Diane Rich and me at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag ChipperEndTimes. Welcome to the End Times and everything Chipperish Media produces is made free and ad-free by the generous patrons who support us to the tune of a dollar a month or more. Those ducks in St. James Park can't very well feed themselves, now can they? <laughs> Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. 
You can also show your support for Welcome to the End Times by going to Apple Podcast and giving us a review or telling your friends about the show at Chippers Media or playing a very complicated cosmic game of solitaire. We will be back next time with our review of the first episode of Good Omens in the beginning, which will be available on Amazon Prime on May 31st. Until then, remove thy thieving hand, Master Cranby. I mind well how you swindled the widow Plashkin this Michaelmas past, you skinny old snatch pastry. Drink-